Each and every Sunday we gather to worship, but why do we worship the way that we do? I'm Rebecca Garrett-Pace, and this is The Day After Sunday, a look at the why behind the worship. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Day After Sunday. Welcome, Mitchell and Phil. Thanks for joining me this morning. It's good to be here. Lovely Monday morning. Lovely Monday. Lovely Monday. So if you have not, uh, if you didn't get a chance to worship with us yesterday and you're wondering what in the world we're talking about, you can catch up on um, our Facebook or YouTube and we encourage you to do that um, just so you can know, you know, what we're talking about on this podcast, but then in the future, we'd love for you to join us now in person is a, is back on the table as an option, as well as worshiping virtually um, that we'll continue to do. So it was good to be back in person for the and first all time people said. since January 2nd. Amen. <laughs> yeah, January 2nd was the last time. And I wasn't even here for that Sunday. No, I wasn't but, either. So it's been, I wasn't there for the Sunday before. Wow. You haven't seen some of these people since Christmas Eve. That's right. Yeah. Golly. That's wild, y'all. That's just a wild <laughs> world we live in. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's one way. Yes, Phil. The world is wild right now. That's true. Um, but so yesterday we had a lot of things uh, going on in worship. Yes, we were back in person. And I want to just talk about that for a little bit. Um, Mitchell, you you commented how nice it was to preach with people in the room. Not to say that your staff is not people as well. Like I will say when, when we didn't have the congregation, I at least tried to up my like laughter at your jokes and thing. I was trying to feed you a little energy, but there is no replicating. Having yeah. But actual, you weren't you know. sitting in front of me. Right. That's true. <laughs> yeah. And Phil was there's sitting no, in the no balcony. She didn't actually yeah. think your jokes were funny. Well, she was just upping it to try to make it seem like yeah, totally. there was some kind yeah. of comedy there. Yeah, it was like uh, what <laughs> kind of some forced laughter, like uh, you know, from the side during my if joke. Only I had telling, a laugh track yeah. right now, right? Like, I resent that <laughs> remark. I <laughs> I think you're funny, Mitchell, most of the time. Um, I do have a la- laugh track over here off of the roadcaster, but it's one of eight buttons. The, and the I, which one? Oh wait, wait, wait for it. Wait for it. Ask okay. and you shall receive. Oh, actually, I guess I asked, but okay. <laughs> you asked, you gave yourself a gift. No, yeah, you're right, Rebecca. I mean, it's just, there's no substitute for yeah. doing worship in um, embodied community. in this space. Yeah. Like, uh, it doesn't mean that worship can't be uh, powerful and impactful when experienced online, uh, because I think like there's no doubt that that's going to become more and more the norm for folks. But sure. there is something unique about em- gathering and holding the same space, and it's certainly easier to preach, at least for me. Right? There are some preachers who don't uh, don't derive their um, their kind of energy and where they go with their sermons from like the actual f- real time feedback, mm-hmm. which I think is, uh, you know, certainly one way to do homiletics, but I, um, I very much need to see people and which yeah. makes even mask wearing tough because you can't actually gauge reaction. Sure. And, um, I mean, you can gauge over the top 
maybe inappropriate reactions to uh, <laughs> what I say with a mask on. But for the most part, like, it's hard to tell if people are like how they're. But still, just being in the space, uh, the music was, um, you know, brought brings a different energy when there's, yeah. you know, 70, 80 people singing instead of just you and me off to the side. Right. And so and Keith, Keith, 100 percent of the time. Sings. Oh, yeah. Keith, yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Um, yeah, I was actually having a conversation. I, uh, Jeff and I went to lunch with a few people yesterday and, um, we were, it, it was a mix. It was an interesting mix of people. Some are, uh, either are, or used to be church leaders. Some are teachers and some are neither of those things. And we were having a really interesting conversation about the different energy about, you know, cause one of them said, man, I, I just can't imagine how hard it is to sing to a red light on a camera or to preach to a red light. And, you know, Yes, on the one hand, that's true. But then we, the conversation shifted a little bit to say like, well, it is partly performance. I think that was one of the music teachers that said that, mm. um, you know, and if, if you're listening to this podcast, you might pull back and say like, oh yeah, I don't like that word perform. Cause I, I pull back a little bit from that to say like, well, worship shouldn't be performative, but there is still an element of performance whenever we, sure. uh, share our craft, right? Like we're, that's the point of preparing, you know, you're not going to get up there, Mitchell, with a half-baked sermon that you haven't, like, really thought eh, through. There are I mean, those Sundays. Not usually. Not usually. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, th- but this element of performance, I think, is is what gets us through when we don't have the feedback uh. from from human beings. Um, but it's it does feel a lot more natural when you can, you know, when I can hear the congregation singing, even if I can't see their mouths moving, I can hear them sing. Um, it's just, yeah, I would say it's, it, there's an element of performance regardless, but it's elevated when you have to manufacture that energy. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think it's heightened. Um, yeah, right. Performance isn't in itself, uh, bad. It's, it's the, no, it, it's neutral, thing. right? It's a neutral yeah. reality of what we do. Right. And so, yeah, you're right to say that anyone who, who <laughs> has a craft that is, uh, you know, displayed to the public, there's some sort of performative aspect to that. You have to perform the actual yeah. <laughs> craft or task, right? It's the same thing we perform the rituals, right? Yeah, right. But um, but we don't we don't do it in in the sense of like making it a performance. I think that's true uh, because performance uh, most often, you know, there's this kind of we we shy away from the word because for folks in the congregation who may not have a part to play mm-hmm. in worship yeah, or at least perceived part to play in worship. Um, you know, th- it makes it far more transactional and like it's a, you know, they're at a show or something or a, right. a concert or a play right. and that is not what worship is. So, right. um, yeah, I think it's, it is hard. You have to like, you have to just kind of psych yourself up a little bit and also, mm-hmm. Just trust. I think even just a little bit more that the preparation you've done is is adequate, and and um, because you can kind of adjust. Or at least I do my preaching. I can adjust based off of how it's landing with yeah, folks. Uh, totally. But when it's no feedback, you have to just kind of trust that what you've done is uh, is good enough for for the moment. I think the mm-hmm. interesting thing about this idea of performative or performance is. You know, if you think about the most impactful performances you've been to, right? Like they're impactful because you're drawn into the experience of it. And so we mm-hmm. shy away from that word so much because we want it to be more experiential as opposed to passive. 
Um, and, mm-hmm. and even just having this conversation is making me realize that like, and we, you know, we've talked about it. Like when you're online only, it almost feels like you have to heighten the performative aspect of it because you don't have the feedback and you, you know, you have to overly sure. prepare for that like performative piece of it. Um, but that's because it's a, it's a further gap to be able to make it an experience, something that's experiential for people on the other side of a screen as, a, as opposed to actually sharing physical yeah. space. So I don't want to just put us in a dichotomy there, right? Like there's not like this either or yeah. kind of situation, but um, yeah, it's a, I think it's a good conversation yep. and it's important. Well, I think too, I mean, there's, there has to be a, a level of risk that you take any, any performer. <laughs> and in that I put, right. Not just people who perform on stage for a living, mm-hmm. but um, mm-hmm. teachers are certainly, they have an aspect of performance. Anybody mm-hmm. who teaches a room full of students, especially if they're, let's say introverted, they have to perform with that energy for eight hours a day. Um, but anybody who has any part of their, their job or their career that is, has performance based, they know like, there's there's a little bit of a risk that you have to take when you put yourself out there and there's the hope of reciprocal risk from the people who are receiving it and like there's a for me there's a trust like i talked with colleagues near near the beginning of the pandemic and a lot of them said yeah my uh my pastor just nixed the hymns because what's the point nobody's going to sing alone in their homes and i was thinking well uh, let's talk about that. (laughs) Like I have to trust and I have to risk, um, inviting people that I can't see or hear to participate, to say something back to me when I can't hear them, right. To say, amen. (laughs) If I'm looking into a camera and I invite them to say, amen, that they're going to say, amen in their homes or in their cars or wherever they're watching. Um, and I just, you know, when I had those conversations, I just remember thinking, number one, how grateful I am for our staff that believes in the the wholeness of the worship experience. Um, but number two, that we have a community built up that has this uh, willingness to risk and willingness to trust to fill yeah. that gap. Um, and that happens in person as well as online. Totally. Not everyone sings a hymn in person either. Right, right, uh, right. And we shouldn't make the assumption that uh, that everyone is singing at home because that's probably not true. But the, what we should do is say, here's the opportunity yeah. and trust that even if it is 10% of the worshiping body singing, that it's yeah. worth it, right? Yeah. Like the devalue, it gets into this sort of utilitarian understanding of like the different facets of worship. And like we start scrapping things when we feel like it's not like the super majority of people either are, are participating or appreciating it. And that really isn't at the heart of worship anyway, right? right. Because like we try to we try to push down our preferences for worship and recognize that throughout an entire worship service, there are opportunities for everyone to participate in the kind of fullness of, of a service. And so, yeah, I, I, you know, it's harder and I love this idea of trust. We have to trust that the congregation is uh, with us and, and following us in, in our leadership of worship. Um, but but we should never make this assumption that it's uh, that that everyone's doing that on Sunday morning in person either, right? Like <laughs> right. it's a, always a mixed bag, and we're always coming into worship with our stuff, and mm-hmm. sometimes it's not there for for folks, and sometimes mm-hmm. it is, and uh, yeah, I just I try to divorce the actual like reaction individual mm-hmm. reactions of people from the the task itself because um 
you know, people have varying degrees of comfort. Well, and Mitchell, I love what you said. Um, you know, I know we have a lot more to talk about, but when, when you said we, we try to get over our preferences a little bit, I, that's so important to me. And that's something that I say a lot is, um, yes, it matters whether people, whether you like something in worship. Yes, we want, you know, I want to craft a worship service that's meaningful and beautiful and moving to individuals. You can let us know those opinions at worship at WRUMC.org. Yeah. Hot takes. Um, Give me all your hot takes. But I mean, I I also, this is a really important part of my theology as well, is when somebody comes up to me and says, you know, uh, hey, I really didn't like thus and such. You know, I that I just didn't like that. I wish we didn't sing that. Why do we have to sing so many old hymns, or why do we have to sing so many new hymns and not as much old? You know, and I I try to change the question to did from from did I like it to how is God moving in it? So you know, if, if I have again, it comes back to trust. If I have a little bit of a relationship with that person, I will challenge them and say, you know, okay, thank you for your feedback. I hear you. Um, I invite you to think about if you didn't like, let's say you didn't like the first hymn, Lord of the Dance is not your cup of tea. What if the person next to you really needed that? What if, you know, that's how they connected to God that morning? Would you want to take that away from them? And usually the answer is, well, no, I didn't think about it like that. Like, you know, did I like it is important. It's not the only thing though. How is God moving in the space? How is God moving in someone else's life that I care about, that I want to see grow in their faith as well? Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, that's the challenge always of, of, of crafting worship. And I think it's something that like, you know, takes time within a community to like establish a worship identity, but it also, I mean, it's just huge kudos to, to you, Rebecca, for, for the ability to do it because the, the variation within our worship is is higher than most, and oh. I think that um, that variation both is is inviting when the community owns the variation, and can be like really uh, discouraging when the community is trying to reject the variation. So it's a long game, I think, in in terms of like worship styles. I think what's also funny is like people assume that the reason, you know, we worship this way is because uh, I like this type of worship, which is not to say that I have not grown to really love our worship because I have, but it's not my preferred default. Like I would not like if I was just a blank canvas and you said, Mitchell, you can choose or pick whatever kind of church worship you you want to participate in. This would not be my default. Right. And so I think for folks to like just make assumptions that like somehow it's just our preferences being forced upon people mm-hmm. is a really, uh, un- you know, we have to get past that, too, because it's it's I don't think there's any any way that this would be like the absolute way that either, uh, uh, you know, any of us would, would, if we can pick and choose, totally, yeah. which is why we don't pick and choose, like, cause it's not about us, right? It's, it's yeah. about, it's about a community and it's about a mission field and it's about a context and it's about, I mean, there's so many other factors that go into play here. Yeah. That's a super interesting, let's put a pin in that because I think it would be cool to talk about each of us. If we, if we could create the, I, our ideal worship, what style and what, you know, streams of worship song we would mm-hmm. use and all that kind of stuff. I think that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, don't, don't make but me yeah, pick. so I mean, on, speaking. Don't make me pick. <laughs> that's why I said we'll put a pin in it. You can, you can mull Ruminate over. On that yeah, just 
and let it stew, Phil. It's probably some metaverse worship service with like Fortnite concerts or something for Phil. Three million people, man. Okay. Three million people. My brain just <laughs> exploded. Yeah. Uh, but so let's talk about the first hymn, right? Um, Phil, you said there was some chat. How did you put there it? Was chatter there in the was chat box. Chatter yeah. in the chat box. Chatter in that chat box. Yeah, people saying that one they'd never heard it before, or somebody else was saying that they yeah. just love this hymn so much. Um, yeah. And I loved that we had a little girl dancing in the aisle. Like that was just perfect, yeah. right? Like to me, I was like, this is yeah. this is exactly what Lord of the Dance should inspire in people. Sure. Right. Yeah. Totally. Um, I, I, Mitchell, I know you have heard it before because we've sung it in worship. Phil, have you heard that hymn before? Yeah, I think you've sung. We've sung it whenever I've been here. Okay. 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 I couldn't remember. Yeah. There are a couple of really neat things about that hymn. Um, so just a little bit of uh, a tidbit. Well, it's, it's a more modern hymn than we usually sing. Um, and that I use modern loosely, right? Like that. Modern in wanna... relationship to other hymns. Like contemporary worship. Modern in relationship As the deer panted. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, anybody want to guess when this hymn was written? Well, I guess 1981. Because it feels like such an eighties <laughs> hymn to me. It does feel a little bit like eighties hymn. A little, a little, uh, a little yeah, earlier than that. Yeah, I thought the fifties, but fifties almost. Nineteen sixty-three. Nineteen sixty-three was when it was written. There was and a lot of like it, daisy time, crowns that were being made for people to wear in their hair as they wrote it. Yeah, that's yeah, very true. Yeah, it's you know, I, and I think I'm getting this story right. I heard it, you know, from somebody who heard it from somebody. So if you're listening and you know, you can confirm or deny this, let me know. Um, this was actually a pretty controversial text um, when it was written because a lot of, I would say, Western Christianity was not okay with dance in church. And more than that, they were not okay with thinking of God as dancing. And so this was – I mean, we, we sing it now. Yeah. We're like, oh, this is one of my favorites or, oh, this is so cool or like, you know – we, we get up and dance and I love that, you know, they, they have the freedom to do that. But when it was written and when it was even to the point when it was included in our 1989 hymnal, um, that was not a unanimous pick. It was a, it was a little bit of a risk for them to put that in a hymnal, even as late as 1989, because it was controversial to think of God dancing, um, and like approving of this, you know, carefree body movement kind of thing when so much of, I would say, mainline white Christianity was buttoned up, frozen chosen kind of Christianity. Yeah. So. So it was like Lord of the Dance and then everyone was like, how else can we like push the church forward? And then it was like laughing Jesus portrait. <laughs> Right. That's actually, yeah, that's probably. I wonder when uh, Laughing Jesus portrait came out. Phil, I'm going to say 1981. Laughing Jesus. 1981 is like your Seriously. favorite year, Mitchell. I wasn't even born then. None of us were. I can actually say that this time. But it's it's so interesting to me because, <laughs> you know, there's the, the Greek term perichoresis, which is like this, you know, like mm-hmm. Cosmic the, dance. the divine dance, right? Like Richard Rohr's mm-hmm. whole book, Divine Dance. But. But yeah, it's not like Richard Rohr came up with that, right? Like that's a, a long history in Christianity of like the Trinity being sure. not defined. I don't want to say defined, explained through this divine dance or a dance around choreography mentality. And so, yeah, you know, what, how gosh, how often we just totally miss the mark on things. <laughs> All right, y'all ready and want to know when the laughing Jesus picture Can't came wait. about? I'm gonna guess. Hold on, I'm gonna guess. 
1970. I was going to say 74. Okay. 1973. Wow. I think that Phil. There was, was no Googling. GTS here. <laughs> so <laughs> it was uh, commissioned by the. It was one. It was painted by a Canadian. Well, that makes nice. sense. Yeah. As part of the uh, Freedom Convoy. Um, I was like, no, I don't know what kidding. that means. United Church of. <laughs> United Church of Canada. <laughs> Y'all haven't heard about the Freedom Convoy? No. Oh, let's Google okay. that later. Uh, 1973, <laughs> the United Church of Canada. Yep, they have a lovely creed. So there you go. They yes, <laughs> that is so also in our hymnal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, shockingly, uh, <laughs> The other cool thing about that hymn, and then we can move on from this. Um, is it's one of very, very few hymns in, again, you know, if we have kind of a broad net of uh, Christian hymnody that goes kind of from end to end. It encapsulates all time. If you sing from the first stanza to the last, it starts with, you know, the Big Bang or creation, however you want to think about it. And it goes all the way through past, you know, Jesus' second coming. Like, I will dance, you know. I am very the cosmic Christ. Forever. Yeah, it's very, very cosmic, cosmic Christ. But it's hard to dance yeah. with the devil on your back. So there's that too, right? It's very That's anthropomorphic. True. That's true. And it's understanding of evil. But also very cosmic Christ. And very, um, shall I say, liturgical dance kind of feel to it. It is, absolutely. I bet there were plenty of liturgical dance ensembles, performances, shows that included uh this hymn. Lord of the Dance. Tune yeah. in next month for Tiny Desk Theology, Lord of the Dance. <laughs> <laughs> oh totally. I mean you can break down each stanza. Oh my goodness. There's so much theology. That in was that. a joke. I wasn't being serious. Also how does it connect to sin? Well, I actually wanted to say real quick, Mitchell talking about um like our preferences. Uh-huh. I don't think I've ever told anybody this before. So this podcast is um I don't love Lord of the Dance because a couple of the middle stanzas have language that I'm not super cool with, and I don't know how to reconcile that. Like, it's, it has this, it has the lame language that I really try to avoid. Um, and so whenever I program that, it's, like you were talking about, Mitchell, it's not just about what does Rebecca like, what does Mitchell like, what does Phil like. Um, I, I program it because I think it has so much to say, but that's not to say that I just like totally, you know, mindlessly put my stamp of approval on the whole thing. I I really struggle with, you know, I cured the lame and the holy people said it was a shame. Great rhyme, really bad. You know, we don't use that kind of language now to describe people with disabilities, so... Uh, just putting that out there for what it's worth. It's it's something that I struggle with every time I program that. <laughs> mm-hmm. I get it. Yeah. Some of the best times uh, also have some uh, uh, sketchy language yeah. sprinkled through. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't, I would say my top, you know, my favorite hymns aren't like just horrible. Theologically, no, totally. Yeah. But I think, yeah, we're uh, being a church that sings, uh, from the past so much we mm-hmm. just we have this kind of wrestling we have to do with yeah language, just a reminder that language sure. evolves too right it's not a static yeah. aspect uh, i know we've talked yep. about on the podcast before about changing lyrics and the empowerment yep. to do so totally yeah and uh, you know in one sense when it was written 
it was breaking boundaries. <laughs> and now we look back and say, oh, well, you could have done so much more. But for when it was, 1963, it was saying it was just like leaps and bounds ahead of other theologies. It's so, hard to dance with an anvil on your back. See, we could just change it right now. Uh-huh. Um, you can let me know if the rest of the... <laughs> rest of the rewrite comes out phil i'll work on that today uh but yeah so you have I mean, nothing this... else to do today phil just rewrite lord of the dance done you can do it i believe in you um i i would say for me the the biggest things mitchell from your sermon that stood out are that you know we can do you know what, what a biathlon is well by means two biathlon Sports. Two sports. Two sports. Which is basically <laughs> is a two. It is. Do y'all know what's actually happening yeah. during the biathlon? Sure. Eli was like, I don't think many people knew what the biathlon great, was. And I was like, really? Great, great. I mean, I know triathlon is what? Running, biking, and swimming. So right? so we're in the Winter Olympics. So it's cross-country okay. skiing so there's and no target swimming. shooting. <laughs> Naturally. Only makes sense. And Louvre. Tar- target shooting. Yeah. That would no, be awesome. Cross country skiing and Cross country skiing and in uh, <laughs> in target shooting. Okay, I would not have guessed that. Which which came to creation? It was like created as an event because uh, you know During the, the Cold War, the military, the military. It was the military would have uh, you know this kind of event where they or training where they'd have to ski and then be able to fire a rifle, oh. and so like it came out of that but they don't they shoot targets and so it's a little more uh it's very european the, the military technically shot targets too yeah t- technically. let me guess so, it was first uh introduced into the olympics in 1981 let's check that i don't that. think there was olympics in 81 but that's a fair guess <laughs> you don't think so you don't think the olympics was in 81 81, yeah, probably sure not. Wasn't olympics in 81, unless 1980 had some kind of global pandemic where they had to delay it for a year Oh, yeah, because Olympics are always in even years. It was called Military Patrol, and it was a combination of skiing and shooting, and it was a contest at the Winter Olympic Games in... 19. 19, yes. 40. Oh, gosh, no, I'm going to bet in the 50s. No, it's probably later than that. Final answer. 1924. What? It's been around that long in oh the Olympics. My I would have never guessed it. Well, it was contested at the Winter Olympic Games in 1924 and then demonstrated in 28, 36, 48. Wow. And then in 48, it was reorganized under the Union International Pentathlon Modern, uh, some French words, became reaccepted <laughs> as an Olympic sport in 1955. I just feel like that's too close to With home. widespread popularity in these two like, countries. Let's all get together in the Olympics where we celebrate... Sweden. Like, this kind of sense of unity and let's talk about let's let's have an event that represents war, war. yeah sweden, sweden and the soviet union oh okay so anyway that's the a reason we're referencing this is because mitchell in his sermon referenced the biathlon we should make right. a context yeah. connection there if you haven't heard his sermon yeah well and, and honestly we should make the context connection even if you and did because the winter olympics are currently taking place <laughs> yes okay <laughs> yes they are so, okay. So what, what stood out to you? Yeah, Rebecca? not biathlon. Uh, okay. So the two things that stood out to me were when you said, they were actually both toward the end of your sermon, um, when you said, let's be humble when we talk about God. <laughs> and 
Number two was we need a completely free God. And I wrote my own notes to kind of summarize that, free of our names, limits, and understandings that we put on God. Um, Totally. I thought both of those were really needed and certainly not what, you know, we we like to say. We like to be able to put things in boxes and categories. And so it's... uh, it's a little uncomfortable to say like, no, we need to spend this next year breaking down our barriers and our boxes for God. Yeah, definitely. And I think like the truth is we can say things about God. I do think that obviously. Uh, And I do think that God has characteristics that can be known to us. Yeah. But I think even when we make declarative statements about who God is, we should always just have the, um, hold those opinions, I guess, as, as loosely as we can. Um, because the truth is we just, we are very limited in our ability to know God or to, uh, to at least define God. Maybe that's a better way to say it. I think we can know God intimately. Mm -hmm. And I think even in our knowing God intimately, that is just one small aspect of who God is. And, um, and I think that that's, uh, you know, it's important for us to, it was a weird sermon in the sense that it was started, right? Chapter one, and we're trying to like get our hands around uh, who God is. And we're trying to like set the stage for chapter two, which is like who we are in relationship to this God. But I thought it was necessary um, using this text to highlight that God is is far more mystery than God is definable. And I think that, um, you know, we need that type of God in a world where like there is the vacuum of, of, of universal truth. We need to like appreciate the mysteriousness of God without trying to like solve for God or like reshape or reform God in our, in our own images. Um, otherwise we are just making golden calves that Mm -hmm. um, serve our own purposes. There's a yeah. whole, and there's a whole like branch of theology that focuses on this called apoth- apophatic theology, right? Where cataphatic, you're trying to mm-hmm. make. It's it's a struggle to say definitive statements about God, right? But it's it's also referred to as positive. But then apophatic is referred to as negative theology, where you're, and it's often used by mystics, right? It's like saying we're not going to cage in God, so we'll we'll make definitive claims about what God is not, or at least what we assume God not to be, right? Like in the negative way, like that, um, which requires a humility. Like I remember one time reading probably in seminary, I don't know, maybe after seminary, but like one of the most humble ways to approach theology is to say, I may have to admit that everything I believe is is wrong, which is a little bit dismantling, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think you can only make those type of statements if you are mature in your faith, right? Like you can only, you can only say things like that if, if you're willing to like, um, if, if your spiritual development has gotten to a place where you realize that God is like so much more than like what you've already constructed. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, if God is only what you've constructed. And I think the I think there is a lot of Christian thought that is centered around God is what we can construct. Uh, it becomes a very threatening thing, obviously. Because then our faith is put in the, into the constructed God and not the God that is wholly other or uh, or unknowable in so many facets of God, right? I think this, you know, I mean, I I read this book in college when I took a world religions class. It's it's a 
you know, there are many, many books in this realm of basically like when religion becomes evil. Um, and I think that's the, the point for me that I took from this was, um, God is always bigger than, you know, all, all of our, and, and I would add God is, God is gooder than, (laughs) um, we're gooder. God is, God is more good than we, yeah, than we can imagine. And God is bigger than we can imagine. And, you know, when we fall into these traps of boxing God in, that's when we risk, like if God starts to hate everybody we hate, we got a problem, right? And that's on a personal level, that's on a national level, that's on a global level. Um, And so I think the main thing in this humility piece, right, is it is very vulnerable to be humble um, because you have to acknowledge like everything I say could be true or nothing I say could be true. Um, And yeah, I feel like you said, I mean, that's not, it's so cool though that we paired that or that you paired that Mitchell with the reading from Exodus, because what I was about to say was if you acknowledge like, well, everything I said about God could be wrong, that feels like shifting sand. And then we hear this, you know, this God that shows up to Moses, even in the tiniest piece of God that just set one bush aflame, that becomes holy ground, stable ground, you know, Moses can stand upon it. And so that's a comfort to me to think, you know, it's not this, uh, like nihilism, you know, it, well, if we can't know anything, if we can't know everything, we can't know anything. It's this nothingness. It is holy ground. It's a glimpse of God. And that glimpse is enough to get you through. It it is like, you know, one of the ways I was kind of thinking about this and it just didn't have time to kind of tease it out, but, um, there is a potency to God, right. That just the mirror. And I think we see this, especially in the Hebrew Bible, right. You can't, there are plenty of places in the Hebrew Bible, uh, Old Testament, where um, where God cannot be interacted with too, um, too firmly. Otherwise, there is consequence, right? God is like too much for us to handle. Uh, and I think there's some fear there, right? That like, oh, God's... But I think it, there's also a lot of uh, really great comfort knowing that like, we don't need, <laughs> we don't need God to be... Um, fully knowable. We just, the saving work of God and God's transformative work in our lives can be accomplished with this, with, with just the tiniest amount of interaction with God. It gets back to Jesus's understanding of faith as the size of a mustard seed and this notion that we don't need like, you know, we don't need all of God to be able to be loved and be saved. We just need the smallest amount of of God in our lives. And from that, God can do really amazing things with us and, and create that stability that Moses has as fleeting as it may have felt to him at the time. It certainly was the catalyst for, uh, for social change in like dramatic fashion. Right. And, and it was a very unsatisfying answer. You know, like there's nothing there that really satisfies Moses's request of, of God. Like, who are you? I am who I am. It almost feels be, snarky, I, right? I, you know, yeah. it does feel snarky and it feels, uh, intentionally, um, uh, elusive. Mm. God's not trying to make God's self known in, the, in, in the fullness of like, right. It, God's not after revealing all of God's self. God is mm-hmm. only after really doing what ensuring that the, that the Hebrew people are freed, 
Mm-hmm. That's God's objective, and it requires He requires Moses to participate in that work. God requires Moses to do that, and then I think we have this we have this really beautiful kind of unfolding mm-hmm. this relationship that the Hebrew people have with God, where God reveals a little bit more of God's self over time when it is needed, but never as a distraction or something that would be disorienting. Because I imagine if we got the fullness of God right off of the bat, we wouldn't be able to comprehend it. Actually, I know that to be true. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is so much in our Hebrew scriptures in the first Testament is like, if you, that's why they thought if you see God, you die. Like you can't, your human body can't take it, you know, like, um, but I mean, or that, you'll be turned to salt if yeah. you don't watch what God does, right? Right, like, or right. I mean, like, yeah, just over and over again. We have these. You're totally right, Rebecca. You'll yeah. die. So you know, I mean, I think what comes to mind, though, Mitchell, when you said that, is is this idea of daily bread, which we pray every Sunday in our Lord's Prayer, that we don't need to see or know all of God. We need just enough for today, and even that is more than we could possibly <laughs> comprehend. Yeah. Yeah. It's more than we can possibly comprehend, and it's why, like, there is something to be said about the spiritual disciplines not being, um, not as a way to define God better for us, but as a way for us to become uncomfortable or more comfortable with the uncomfortableness of not being able to define God. Mm-hmm. So, like, there is that's a can lot. Can you put that on a coffee mug too, salad, possibly, but, or maybe a pillow? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> take three, one really large king size pillow sheet. Um, but I think like we do have a responsibility to like practice the spiritual disciplines to strive after God. But in that striving, we come to an appreciation of the narrow view that we have or the narrow experience we have more than widening our understanding of God. Mm -hmm. Because I think like, if that makes sense, I think we can get really clear about the God, how God's being shown to us in this moment in time. But I, I'm not necessarily convinced that we can like know so much about God that we have God confined or understood. Right. It's almost like we have to just get comfortable with what we can know about God, which is like one sliver, right? Mm -hmm. Like in the infinite, like nature of God, it is just one tiny molecule that is certainly enough. Which is Jesus. I mean, right? Like that's, <clears throat> Which is Jesus, right? For, for Christians, that's what's so powerful about the Jesus stories, that we, we do get a tiny glimpse of God in a way that we can relate to and we can hold on to and like we can model ourselves after not this cosmic Christ that we have no hope of understanding, but this human Jesus that walks alongside us. Um, that's just so beautiful and comforting to me. Like there has to be, totally. there has to be a balance. And we've said this from the beginning of this uh, year long series. We don't want to just unravel people and leave them unraveled. Right. There is this balance right. of yes, God is unknowable, but also God is knowable in a personal, yes. loving, caring, comforting way through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit embodying us and through, you know, each other um, as we experience God's creation together. Yeah, I like to think of it in terms of like, um, you know, what astrophysics or like, uh, you know, what we've come to know about the universe. Like we've learned a lot mm-hmm. about the universe and yet it is like 
but but a, just a drop in the ocean yeah. in terms of what there is to know. And so I think like knowing that we'll never know everything, we can commit ourselves to knowing what we can know. And the best way to do that is through the life and 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 death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think we we know more than enough about who God is through Jesus. Um, and I think it's this balancing act of mm-hmm. both saying what we know about Jesus with humility and the the possibility that we're wrong, mm-hmm. and also affirming where we see Jesus's life, death, resurrection in our own lives, in scripture, uh, basically like how we relate to that Jesus as the kind of foundation for us. Otherwise we wouldn't be Christians, right? Mm-hmm. Which that is not to say that there's like, I'm not making a qualitative statement about that. And I'm just saying like, we as Christians believe we know the most about God through Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, however that works and however that shakes out, that's foundational for us, obviously. And that's what we'll talk about next week. And so there's, I think it is this balancing act, but I guess I just wanted to get us out of the, out of the gate and just recognize that like this whole year long thing has to be done with a certain amount of humility while also not um, trying to take advantage of the mystery Mm-hmm. or the unknowable space and just start throwing stuff out there <laughs> like we see happen in the world today. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think ending with communion um, is this perfect encapsulation of the, we can divine know, mystery. we can know, but only in part. Yeah. Divine mystery. And it's this, it's the real presence of God how we don't know <laughs> we just believe that right. it is right and we take it on faith when you say these words mitchell of the you know come into these elements holy spirit that we will somehow be yeah. enlivened with god's spirit and god's uh very flesh and blood within us as we go back into the world yeah we ask god to show up in some way and yeah. this gets back to the relational nature of god right Pour out your Holy Spirit upon these gifts of bread and juice so they may be for us the real body and blood of Christ. So we may be for the world, the body and blood of Christ. There is this kind of like intimacy in that that is like complete for us. And so just because, yeah, we don't need to rehash it. And I love love that that is one place we think we can deeply know who God is, is through the sacraments, Mm -hmm. right? We deeply affirm who God is through the participation of of both baptism and communion. Did y'all yeah. did y'all read Diana Butler Bass's The uh, Mystical Body of Zoom? Mm-mm. No, it's I haven't really, read it yet. It's, it's on my really, reading list. So she for wrote this it in week. response to that New York Times opinion piece that came out saying that like churches should give up on their online stuff now that like the pandemic is yeah not uh, why I actually didn't read that one because <laughs> I don't subscribe to New York Times, which I should, probably should. But um, so I. I like, Four, they have a deal right now, $4 a month. Oh, really? Oh, nice. Yeah, and for $6 a month, you can get New York Times cooking as well. That would, okay. that would be love. a waste of $2 for me, probably. And probably in a couple <laughs> months, you'll be able to play Wordle. Oh, don't, they're not going to put it behind a paywall. Come on, don't do that to me. They're not going to put it behind a paywall. Not not yet, at least. Yeah, y'all, don't, y'all give a corporation way too Capitalism. much, Grace. Yeah, totally. It, the, the crux, though, one of the things I loved about her article, one, that it's titled The Mystical Body of Zoom. But the other thing is that she, she talks about in 
the New Testament, there's two different words for body in Greek, one being sarx, which mm-hmm. is the physical body, and then one being soma, which is something that is a body that's beyond physical. And then when we talk about the, like the, spiritual yeah, the mystical body, body right? of Christ, right? Like, again, yeah. like that's the yeah. play on words. But um, yeah, I just, and it's, it's a good reminder. I was going to bring it up earlier when we were talking about this idea of online versus in person kind of stuff, but um, it's a really great article. I'll link to it in the show notes and you can check out and give it a read. But um, it's just a good word. It's a good word that, there's there's a whole lot here that we don't understand and we know there's power of embodiment and we look to the the, the life of Jesus in fleshed, but we also know that there's something so much more and it didn't just end with the life of Jesus in flesh, right? That there the the mystical yeah. body of Christ continues to live on and we are a part of that soma and you know, we continue to do that work. Yeah. There were so many hot takes about about communion and digital form. Right when the pandemic, Mitchell, started. we had this conversation I mean, years I, before the pandemic. Do you remember? Yeah, totally, totally. And and like I've obviously evolved my opinion. Uh, I don't think that, and I, we don't need it. We can talk about that in our day. But I do think I was while you were talking about that, Phil, and we were talking about just this kind of like differentiation of space between online and in person. I do think maybe we should put together like a how to take communion at home guide that maybe helps Mm. set the space for folks. Like just like some simple things folks can do, like get your elements ahead of time. Uh, Maybe like try to, to, to participate with the same elements that are being, you know, like make it intentional. Right. My uh, communion game was much higher whenever I was at home than it was with what we're doing communion in person right now. So uh, my, (laughs) my coffee. Oh, totally. (laughs) Well, I, I can't speak to the, um, to the quality of our communion elements uh, in terms of their natural qualities, but I can say that their spiritual qualities are as high. And, um, and so I think it's just, as we look at how do we blend these two spaces, you know, inviting people to think about communion at home as a reality that they may participate in for a very long time. Um, we probably should do our best to make sure that that experience for them is one of, that is as holy and, and, and life giving as we yeah, can totally, and that's a, Absolutely. Just another thing we have to do. After I get done rewriting <laughs> Lord of the Dance, I'll get on that. well friends thank you for a great conversation and if you are listening um and you've made it this far congrats uh but also if you ever have questions about the why behind the worship why we do the things we do um for example you know if you have a question well why do we take communion that way or what does the open table mean or you know why do we sing this hymn and not that hymn uh just send those questions to worship at wrumc.org we can get into some of those and um i look forward to seeing you all in person and in the virtual space next sunday (laughs) okay (laughs) didn't know i was such a comedian just one more time just one more time (laughs) all right bye phil bye mitchell bye friends the day after sunday is a production of white rock media network Join us next week for another look at the why behind the worship.